This is your go-to podcast dedicated to getting the exclusive scoop from the industry's top influencers that are helping to shape the cybersecurity, audit, and IT governance landscape. Tune in as we dig deep and learn their motivators, explore their industry journey, and investigate their ideas and predictions on what the future holds. This is Isaka's CyberPros. Welcome to the show. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening from. I'm John Brandt, Director of Professional Practices and Innovation here at ISACA, and this is CyberPros. Joining me today is Doug Levin, National Director for the K-12 Security Information Exchange, or SIX. The work Doug has done has absolutely been instrumental to help him better the technology and security landscape of K-12 education. Doug, if you would, introduce yourself and give a little bit of background to our listeners. Uh, sure thing, John, and, and thanks to Asaka and you for having me on today and shining a light on the school sector. We don't always get the attention that I think we uh, need and deserve. So my background, I've spent uh, about 30 plus years inside the Beltway, so to speak, in the Washington, D.C. area in a variety of sort of research, nonprofit, association management roles, all focused on K-12 education. Um, I first started working on education and technology issues in the mid-1990s uh, when we were connecting schools to this thing called the Information Superhighway. We thought at the time that four students per computer would be transformational for education. And I've been at it really ever since, uh, maybe most notably before my prior roles, before getting into cybersecurity work, I also served as executive director for five years of an association called the State Educational Technology Directors Association, or CETA, where I work with the technology leadership and state departments of ed all across the country and represented their interests nationally and in DC. So I've worked across a huge array of sort of technology and education public policy issues, broadband, interoperability, privacy, but most recently, the issue of cybersecurity as it has first come onto my radar screen. And then the more I learned, the more concerned I got, uh, the more I wanted to jump in and figure out a way to help, which brings me to the uh, organization that I helped launch and the work that we're doing today. So Doug, as I was preparing for this podcast and reviewing the questionnaire that we send to all of our guests, you know, I was very much aware of your your most recent work, right? And, and that what led to this K-12-6. But really what piqued my interest were two earlier reports. The first titled, Getting America's Students Ready for the 21st Century, which dates way back to June 1996. The second report, Digital Disconnect, the Widening Gap Between Internet Savvy Students in Schools, written circa 2002. Based on my background, right, and predominantly have always been in, you know, high density areas. When I first stumbled upon your work, I was living in rural America, right? And that's where you really see some of the challenges right at the forefront. And, and while I was really eager and happy to move back to the East Coast, just up the road from you about a year and a half ago, I'd like to believe like it's really, it opened my eyes and helped me apply this sufficient emphasis to this digital divide, right? And what we're seeing. And, and it, that has a couple different faces to it. But to me, like all too often in the tech space, we take it for granted 
how great connectivity is. And, you know, where I'm here under Xfinity broadband here in my condo, love and life, I was in rural America. And when I finally got to 25 down, I was really excited and I was paying three times as much, right? The first report I touched on, right? But going back to June 96, there was four goals that were stated there. The first one, all teachers in the nation will have training and support to help students use computers and the information superhighway. And that, uh, that kind of made me chuckle, right? Because you think back of how we framed it. I mean, it's it's funny. It's not that long ago in some way, right? So how, right. how much the language has changed, how much our, our, our thinking has evolved. Yeah. So goal two, right? All teachers and students will have access to modern computers in the classrooms. Each classroom be connected to, you know, information superhighway, then effective software and online learning resources. So, you know, if you don't mind, like you're, you're just been anchored in the space. You're obviously on the security aspect of it. My personal experience, I know that we're not as far along as we need to be in there, but based on those four goals and what you recall of that research, have we really made substantial movement across the nation at large? Yes and no, right? So yes, if you're just looking at the sheer numbers of devices that are in schools, frankly, the reliance on technology by school systems now, not just in the classroom, but for back office operations, administration, facilities management, point of sale in the cafeteria, right? Schools rely on technology today like never before. Um, really at a level they never have uh, before. And that's that's relatively quick in those changes in, in the scope of education history. Now, all of these goals, though, were predicated on the, some notion, right, that by giving kids access to these tools um, and teachers access to these tools, that teaching and learning would be improved, that kids would be more engaged, that this software would be effective almost the vision almost was that the software would be more effective at teaching than the teachers themselves. And what I would say is, you know, while we've made some progress, quite a bit of progress in connecting schools to broadband and getting devices in kids' hands, I think you're right to point out the rural issues. We still have also pockets in urban areas where connectivity is absolutely a problem. But, you know, thanks to the rise of cheap devices, you know, frankly, like Chromebooks, um, it's been pretty expensive to get devices into kids' hands, and broadband prices have largely come down, and schools have availed themselves of those, in some cases through federal support for those programs. What we haven't seen, though, is sort of that expected bump in performance by schools and by kids, right? Now, the nature of how kids are learning has changed, what they're learning has changed. Even the nature of the student body today is very, very different than what it was 30 years ago. But there was really a tremendous amount of hope held out for all the ways that the software would make schooling better. And I think, unfortunately, what we've seen is maybe that software has done a better job of automating the things that have always happened in schools instead of helping us to sort of reimagine what school could be like and really take advantage of the promise in those tools. And certainly there are folks who are still excited about that, but it does always feel like it's something that is at the edge of the horizon. So the next innovation will get us there. We need to invest just a little more because we're almost there. It'll be AI, it'll be ML, it'll be the metaverse, whatever uh, the next next thing is. So 
you know, in that regard, that's been a little disappointing. And then on the flip side, I think we've also seen some unintended consequences that we honestly just didn't envision at the time. And those are largely related to issues of privacy and security. So what data is being collected about students or parents or employees? Who's it being shared with? What is it being used for? What purposes? What safeguards are in place in that regard? And, and are we securing these systems appropriately? And I think you know, while we can be disappointed about how much this technology has maybe may or may not have transformed learning, we certainly are still deeply grappling with issues of privacy and security. And I think, honestly, we have have quite a ways to go. You know, those are all great points. And, and I, there's so much that I want to unpack there. But it also, you know, all your talking points then led us to this second research thing that I highlighted about this the digital disconnect, right? And even back in 2002, one of the, the call-outs that I, I grabbed here said, many schools and teachers have not recognized, much less responded to the new ways students communicate and access information over the internet. And if we think back just a couple years to the beginning of the pandemic and how K-12 had a flex, many lessons were not learned. Like, this was not new. Your research, 2002, we had, you know, 18 years largely, right, of a warning order, if you will, that this was coming. Something that you just talked about, though, really rings true to me, and we see it across industry at large, right? You talked about the back-end support, the business of education, right? So point of sale, the administrators, and, you know, in all of my talks with friends and, and those that are out there that are both on administration side as well as the education side, there's the disconnect in that regard as well. Mm. And from my perspective, like one of the disservices that is, is that in order for educators to help take us to the next level, the in-service training requirements needed to flex a long time ago, right? To account for that, and we're not good across that across the entire nation, right? Almost every industry that's out there, and, and unfortunately, that's like why education often catches a gets a, a you know a bad bad rap or a, or a black eye because we largely see them as reactive and not proactive. And at some point, the R and D component of that needs to take shape. And then the other thing that was called out there is like students insisting that policymakers take this seriously. And even to this day, I, I wholeheartedly agree with it. I have kids at all, you know, in different grades. I see it firsthand, some of the impacts both from administration and the education thing. You go to the privacy aspect and listen, COPA is just flawed, right? Like at the end of the day, heavily flawed. And like for you and I and, and others that are in the privacy space, it's, it's so easy to grab hold of and be like, it's really a simple thing to fix in, in the grand scheme of things. The problem is, is that data is the new currency and it has been, right? So that's why like I'm so skeptical about whether the U.S. is ever going to get to any meaningful privacy legislation is at the end of the day, it's driving a lot, right? Well, and, and, you know, the current draft of the bill that's being discussed in Congress actually exempts school districts and other local and state government agencies from that bill. So if you're a provider serving a school, you get a pass under that law. And now you mentioned COPPA. 
So FTC, you know, is the regulatory agency for COPPA, and that's for uh, technology companies providing general purpose tools and sites that are directed, that they are knowingly directed towards kids. And there's all sorts of gray areas there and loopholes. FERPA is the federal privacy law that is directed to education that, that, and the U.S. Department of Education regulates schools and higher ed institutions under that law. That law was passed initially in 1974. The U.S. Department of Ed has re-regged it a couple of times to try to bring it up to date, but particularly given that the national law that Congress is debating um, exempts schools, the notion that FERPA was written in 1974, it is utterly out of date. So the policy regime, frankly, is broken. There are tons of holes. I had a really tough conversation, actually, with a student whose school had experienced a ransomware incident, and his data was exposed as part of that incident, but the school district wasn't particularly forthcoming with him or other members of the community about what happened and what really may have been exposed and, and what kind of risks they may be facing. And unfortunately, as I'm talking to him, I had to explain that, you know, under current law, it doesn't actually have a lot of recourse. There's not a lot requiring the, the district to make these disclosures, nor to even have to respond to the concerns of students or parents who may be affected. It's definitely a case where, you know, we are playing catch up. And I think your, your earlier observation about sort of schools not leading the way, I think that speaks, um, you know, very, very, it rings, it rings true in my, in my mind. K-12 schools are often the last to sort of adopt and pick up these tools. Um, we're also the last to take the steps that we need to now to think more deeply about privacy and security. It's really a lagging sector in that way. I think COVID really, and our response to COVID, really drove a lot of uh, awareness in people's minds about just how much schools rely on technology um, and frankly, how challenged they remain in, in implementing it. Right. Because I think our experiences, the experience of students, the experience of teachers was was really mixed. And you you, you there's reason to be disappointed about that, even though th that shift really happened on the drop of a time, because we have been working on this for so long. And we do have some notions of what it takes to implement technology well and to use it well in the classroom. And we know that it takes training and we know that it takes uh, support. But. You know, schools, uh, frankly, are not terrific about how they manage their IT uh, investments. They tend to try to do it on the cheap, whether that's older and underpowered devices, whether that is smaller IT teams supporting numbers of users and devices that, frankly, probably in the private sector, people would be shocked to, uh, to hear and not even hiring, um, uh, you know, privacy or security staff. Um, you know, so they have folks with the capacity and the knowledge um, in-house, right? So this is a, a long enterprise. There's not going to be any uh, quick wins here per se. I mean, this is a marathon. And so, you know, I don't think the genie's going back in the bottle. We're going to keep using technology. I think the, the goal that, you know, I have and that folks that I'm working with have is, you know, trying to help schools avoid, you know, those predictable uh, mistakes and issues and get back on that path, right? So that we are focused on taking advantage of what makes sense for kids and paying attention to those unattended consequences and, and addressing them along the way. 
You know, a couple points that you just brought up here, uh, you know, first and foremost, you know, I hear risk a lot, you know, when, when you speak and you're absolutely right. You know, um, in the, my former community up there in Michigan, I remember, you know, and again, that's just a different dynamic on how they operate, but all those local districts were actually shared into the, into the, the county hub, right? So all for me, and you know this firsthand, like anybody's in the space, like the fact now that you have a half a dozen schools all interconnected, almost hub and spoke introduces additional unnecessary risk. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point, right? So, I mean, people can think about schools and they go, oh, well, what do schools have that's that's that concerning? Kids' grades. Like, what what could you do with kids' grades? Maybe embarrass kids, but it's not it's not like it's credit card information or financial information. Um, well, so there's a couple of, of, of misconceptions. One is uh, kids' personal information. If you're looking to sort of trade an identity theft in the dark web, the identity info of minors is actually more valuable than those of adults. And that's because the... Criminals can open credit records in the names of kids' accounts, and those are not being monitored, right? So they can be abused in some cases for 5, 10, 15 years until their age of majority, try to get that college loan or try to uh, rent their first apartment. And that's when they find out that their credit record has been destroyed. And we've seen incidences of schools specifically being uh, attacked by threat actors ransomware actors who have stolen data and then abused the credit records of kids as young as first graders, right? So we know that happens. Um, secondly, you know, schools actually, well, we don't think of them as wealthy institutions that I would never argue that they are. You need to sort of have a perspective on this, which is that in many communities, particularly across rural communities, they are the largest local employer. They maintain facilities. They have a transportation fleet. They provide food service, right? They are big enterprises. They just don't have as much money as they would like, and they need to do all the things they would like for kids, right? But they ha they manage a lot of money. Like a medium-sized school district is managing hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Now, a lot of that is obviously tied up in hard costs, right? But it's plenty of money to you know track the eye of a, of a threat actor. And you know, compared to you know institutions like banks, they're much less well protected, right? So. And unfortunately, we do have some history of schools paying those extortion demands, right? Which then just leads us to sort of this vicious circle of folks continuing to target uh, schools because it works. Um, so, you know, one is, you know, there's valuable stuff in school. The second thing is that, yeah, you're right. Schools are interconnected with other systems that are important. Um, in some cases, that's other school systems. In, in some cases, that's other city and county governments, right? And so there may be shared hosting facilities, even shared infrastructure with uh, the city or town where their schools are located, right? The police department, the fire department may share IT backend, right? So whether you can get in, you know, through your local law enforcement or the school district, you can kind of get one to the other. Um, of course, local elections are held in school districts in many cases, right? So there is some evidence that threat actors, for instance, were targeting schools in Florida, trying to learn about the election system and get into it there. Um, and then there's actually a concerning story that broke out in North Dakota a couple of years ago, where threat actors actually compromised something like two thirds of school districts across the state using a specific state mandated application that reported data from the schools, financial data from the schools to the State Department of Education. Interestingly, the threat actors were not interested in anything related to the education sector. 
they were interested in getting into the state systems and pivoting from the State Department of Ed into the State Department of Agriculture, which is apparently what their target was. That actually ended up leading to some passage of some, some legislation in the state. Now, North Dakota State Department of IT actually has some responsibility for the security of schools because it turned out the schools were the vector to try to infect and attack the state. Even if stepping back, if you look at a school district, medium-sized school district, you're probably talking about 10, 15,000 devices connected to the internet at any given time, all of the servers that they're running, uh, hundreds of applications. That is a big uh, attack surface right there. And there absolutely have been cases where schools have just been the infrastructure that the threat actors have used to go after even juicier targets, right? So there's all sorts of reasons that we should care about protecting the IT infrastructure of schools from you know, protecting kids themselves to the interconnection with other local and state systems to just frankly being a juicy target for threat actors who are looking to repurpose infrastructure for denial of service or other you know, launching pad for other sorts of attacks against even more valuable infrastructure. I really do wish that policymakers understood that and grokked the fundamental value of protecting schools. Um, I think in many cases, the cybersecurity world, frankly, is only thinking about schools as a place to train future cybersecurity workers, right? And we, you know, we absolutely have a shortage of these workers. K-12 schools definitely have a role to play. But in the meantime, they're running an awful lot of IT systems that are vulnerable and frankly, are, be, are being abused right now. We have you know, increasing evidence that that is happening and that those abuses are, are pretty significant. Your last point is one that is, it's a point of contention for me, right? That's happening out there because you're exactly right. K-12 is an afterthought. And, and one of the things, and I think we talked about this during our pre-podcast conversation where we talked about the frustration that I personally had as soon as, you know, we have Cybersecurity Awareness Month in October, and now we just did Cybersecurity Education Month. They passed this in June when, as you call, pointed out, like a lot of schools are out then, and we're perpetuating this thing here. And again, this conversation is largely centered around the United States. We have the, you know, the the nice national, uh, you know, initiative for cybersecurity education, the K-12 is separate from the academia aspect of it. And it really boggles my mind because we can no longer decouple the two. And whereas you and I and our listeners are largely focused on the greater IT workforce, the reality is, is that digital literacy just permeates every occupation out there. Our national academic strategy just needs to be flipped on its head. It hasn't largely been updated in way too long. Uh, this fourth industrial revolution is not new. It, this is not impending. Like we've been in it for a hot minute and we really need to revisit how and what we're teaching our, our youth to prepare them because there's there are some great success stories. But when I was doing some post-grad work, there's some blaring failures with existing, you know, specifically STEM and STEAM initiatives that have been underway because they were, they were bolted on kind of like we treated security for so long in the IT industry. So without kind of looking at it in the, in the larger sense, and in order to do that, 
and this is a hard reality, I think, for a lot of educators is you need folks in industry to kind of help you give the use case because you're not doing it today. So if you're not, if you don't have an awareness of how these things are all interconnected in life in general, how can you really internalize it and, and be able to, to make age appropriate material at the earliest level? It's a, it's a huge challenge, right? And we've, you know, like there were some recent stories about sites, you know, targeted, frankly, to preschoolers, right? Um, but experiencing, you know, pretty concerning issues, sites like Neopets or Club Penguins or Webkins, right? I mean, we can't start too young with these kids. And you're right, there is no place, there's no institution, there's no organization that is helping parents, uh, families, young kids, even teachers understand the the risk that they may be facing in sort of blindly using these tools and apps um, in their homes and in in classrooms. There's no question that you know it's it's something that that we have struggled with. Um, and as you know, you know the federal government has put frankly millions of dollars into efforts to try to encourage cybersecurity awareness generally, but then second. Uh, secondly, to get kids interested in going to cybersecurity careers. Certainly a mixed effort in that. But I will tell you right now, the federal government has spent zero dollars in helping schools to protect themselves from risks like ransomware, phishing scams, denial of service attacks today. And we're not saying that you know the, the training and, and education and career awareness isn't important. Uh, but frankly, we need some balance in this work. Um, and frankly, you know, unfortunately, I think you mentioned it as well. K-12 is too often sort of left as an afterthought. Um, of course, we are part of the state and local government agency sector. Depending on who you talk to and what context we consider critical infrastructure, except frankly, every time uh, resources are developed, every time money flows out to help uh, state and local governments, K-12 is frankly never invited to the big kids table, right? We are always left out of the table, we're not provided the support, we're not provided the money, and frankly, what resources are available, and, and you know, they're sort of too generic for the K-12 context, right? Schools are sort of a very special type of organization. They have their own language, their own culture, the way they make decisions. And while there's no shortage of guidance on how organizations can protect themselves, um, I think it is eye-opening for folks who, like, say, work in industry, or maybe worked in the federal government, and then go talk to schools, um, what may seem obvious to us is maybe uh, sort of a foreign language to folks in schools. I have a colleague, you know, at my organization, K-12-6, who talks about, you know, the maturity level of schools on a, on a scale of one to five, right? If you're looking, you know, uh, where five is mature and one is not very mature, you know, he said on average schools are a zero, right? We're, we're you know, we really need to help schools scaffold up into the work that is ongoing that's been really great. I mean, ISOC has been doing it and, and lots of other organizations to help build the maturity of organizations to manage IT in a way that is more responsible and more proactive. It is a difficult problem and you talked about it, right? Is I, I always interpreted it as being critical infrastructure, arguably though it's buried like three, four levels down, right? So to your point, it is baffling that zero money has flowed down. And in, in, in a prior con, you know, conversation, and you and I, you know, over the years have exchanged, I think, you know, some some dialogue on LinkedIn and whatnot, you know, because 
in response to your your uh, cyber reporting that you were doing before you got this more formal approach out is at the end of the day, if we look at you know any kind of you know K twelve specifically, if you give a superintendent money, they're going to go buy more educators. That's just typically the way it's going to be. So, you know, and I've, I've previously written on this, like, again, my thought is separate funding line in, in a lot of your smaller districts are, they know how to do this because in your smaller rural areas, they rely on local millages to sustain them. Whereas as a taxpayer, I didn't like the millage. The benefit of them was that they were auditable to a specific purpose. And to me, I think that's the more important thing anymore, because largely speaking, any of us who have been around the government, we know that everything becomes a slush fund. Right. So whereas if so, if we if there was a dedicated amount of money, we're going to say we're going to, you know, dedicate to, you know, cyber defense, we're going to dedicate to human capital and you have to use it for that, that purpose. You can't redirect it. And that would be a more appropriate way in thinking back to my, my interactions with superintendents though, they would probably lose their mind at what even an entry level cybersecurity person costs in comparison. Right. And I'm sure you see this in in your walk. Yeah, no, I mean, so I agree completely, right? I mean, I think part of the root of the issue is unless it is specifically compelled of school districts, right, through policy or regulation, right, or grant uh, requirements, you know, schools are not, have not been spending on cybersecurity. And, and while this may be hard for people to wrap their heads around, there is no minimum cybersecurity risk management standard that schools are held to around the country. Um, as a parent, as an IT professional, you probably have some notion of what you would expect your schools, you know, your kids' school to be doing to protect all the information and data that they are collecting and, and all of the money they've spent on this equipment. The fact of the matter is that it is just beholden 100% on how enlightened local leadership is, right? And that changes over time. And many of the regular sort of uh, superintendents, school board members, the folks who ultimately control the purse strings, do not understand cybersecurity. And they certainly don't appreciate the amount of money it costs to buy a good, you know, a highly qualified cybersecurity professional. In many communities around the country, frankly, it may be challenging to find enough of those individuals. I mean, there are schools all over the country in many rural areas. That's always going to be a challenge um, in that regard. But I also fear, um, depending on how those, say, um, funding streams are established, that we're going to get into a little bit of sort of solutionism and the uh, sort of security vendors of the world will come out and they will pitch, you know, this firewall is the solution to all of the cybersecurity woes that you have or this monitoring tool or that, you know, security tool. And while there is no question that those tools are integral to helping run a security program, when schools don't have you know, enough capacity internally, they don't have the knowledge, they don't have the expertise, they don't have the time, those tools are, are gonna go underutilized and frankly, that money is gonna be wasted. So it's definitely a challenging situation. I mean, we have been arguing uh, as an organization that there does need to be, uh, frankly, a minimum standard set for schools. 
And while you can argue about the challenge of setting such a standard and how the floor becomes a ceiling and it just becomes a checklist exercise, the fact of the matter is that there is no floor right now, and that is an untenable situation. And we do need to put into place some clear expectations um, across states, right? So that every parent, every kid, every teacher understands that they should have, you know, they can expect a certain level of protection and that there needs to be some accountability and auditing to that and some resources provided to schools to make sure it gets implemented. Um, I think it's very difficult to see any way forward that really makes a difference that doesn't do those things. So something I want to highlight here, because you brought this up during our, during our pre-call, and, and I really think this is one of the things that I, if there was any tagline, any reinforcement, right, is when we, when we look at the security and risk posture of K-12, right, a, with what we largely see on the media, right? Like physical security and some of the tragedies that have happened, those get the energy, they get a lot of attention. And I'm not trying to diminish that at all, but to your point in the, all of the reporting that you've done, cyber related incidents in, in, you know, that are taking down school districts and costing lots of money and resulting in breaches and all that far outweigh that. Didn't you have, what, what, yeah, you yeah, I would, I would, I would, you know, like, uh, right. School shootings are definitely a deeply concerning issue, right? They're emotionally charged. Uh, it's very difficult to see lots of complicated issues with that, but like, that is like, uh, the odds of getting struck, you know, on a, uh, you know, by lightning or bit by a shark when you're swimming in the ocean. Right. I mean, they're absolutely tragic when they happen, but they are the exception. Right. Um, I would, you know, based on what information that we are aware of that we've been able to assemble from public sources, because public disclosure is another challenging issue that we have, it is absolutely routine that schools are experiencing cybersecurity incidents that are pretty significant, right? And whether that's being caused by the mistakes of, of insiders, uh, by uh, students, middle and high school students who may be bored or frankly, external threat actors who are looking to defraud schools or extort them right through ransomware. Um, we're seeing them happen, frankly, at a pretty steady clip. And the odds, I would say that the odds of a school district, you know, being uh, at risk of a data breach or a ransomware incident is far, far higher. In fact, I would, I would guarantee almost that uh, school districts are going to be under uh, attack. Every school district around the country uh, is facing these sorts of issues and is going to experience, if they haven't already, one of these incidents. Our attention has been on the physical security side. Um, frankly, I think we need to get that balance better. Uh, I'm certainly not going to argue that we take resources away from protecting the physical security of students and staff and parents, but we do need to pay attention to all of the risks that we're introducing in schools. And given how much we rely on technology today, the most, you know, it is much more likely that students will experience a cybersecurity incident that will affect uh, their privacy and security than they will experience a physical security event. You know, and what comes to mind right there is all the interconnect, interconnectivity, right? Like all the investments that are being made in physical security, uh, building systems, automated locks, cameras, all of that stuff is IP enabled, right? So if there's right. no stronger argument for this, because 
Whereas all of those incidents you just, you know, when we talk about like school shootings or whatnot, as tragic as they are, what we've not largely seen is a coordinated non-kinetic versus tangible violent situation, right? Look, look, I mean, we have examples of ransomware actors who have taken over school cameras, all right, and demonstrated that they were watching activity in the school building as a way to sort of uh, up the, 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 the extortion demands that they were putting wow. into place, right? So it's, it's almost worse. It's not that they're not coordinated. It's we're putting in all these IP-enabled physical security systems that frankly have a digital backdoor uh, wide open to them. You know, we've yep. had them triggered by hackers. We've had them taken over by hackers. You know, thankfully, I guess we, you know, I have no doubt that we've seen schools cased uh, online based on what people are able to observe, right? So I don't want to give folks ideas, right? But it's it's as bad as you say, and maybe worse, right? Right? I guess is what I want to underscore. So, you know, we, we talked to, I've referenced some of these, uh, the K-12 cyber incident map is really what put you on the map, Doug, right? And that's how I, I came to learn about you. And, and through a lot of, I think a lot of persistence and, and your deep knowledge, right? This thing evolved into this K-12 security information ex, ex, uh, exchange, the K-12-6. Can you talk about it and what you're all, what you're working on right now? Right, yeah. So, um, you know, given the different roles that I've played over time, I did uh, start seeing stories of schools being compromised by cybersecurity incidents. Um, at one level, I was not surprised because I knew they were relying on technology and more and more. At another level, I couldn't find any information, any research that really spoke to the experiences of K-12 schools specifically. Um, most of the industry cybersecurity reports that talk about the education sector combine higher education institutions, universities and colleges, and K-12 institutions. They combine public and private institutions, and they may even be reporting on activities that are happening across the globe, right? And so, you know, the experiences of a university, say, in India, are not going to translate really well to the experiences of a school district, public school district in Peoria. And so what I wanted to do is to start to assemble some kind of a knowledge base, because frankly, we had nothing about the specific risks and threats that schools were facing here in the U.S., public school districts. And I started to assemble a data set of publicly disclosed school cybersecurity incidents. And I've maintained this data set since 2016. And I've now written four annual reports on the state of K-12 cybersecurity based on that sort of annual trends in that report. So what types of incidents are uh, most frequently experienced? What are the consequences of those incidents? What are the trends uh, that we're seeing over time? And then what do we know about how schools are protecting themselves and maybe what does it say about how schools could better protect themselves? Um, as I was doing that work, it became clear that this was not just some uh, research project um, of mine, right? Like this, this, this was a big deal. We were not paying enough attention to it. I met other advocates and that led me to conversations with colleagues at the Global Resilience Federation or GRF. Um, GRF spun out of the financial services ISAC right, the information sharing and analysis community. And FSISEC was one of the first and, and most successful private information sharing communities uh, helping to protect organizations in that sector from all sorts of threats, including cyber threats. 
GRF was spun out of that, basically out of the financial services ISAC to stand up other organizations to serve other sectors uh, with this notion of collective defense, the notion of working together in a sector to protect all members of the sector from the risks that they're facing. In the K-12 world, there had been no such organization focused on helping schools specifically protect themselves from these emerging cybersecurity risks. And so we launched late in 2020 as the first national nonprofit vendor neutral schools are our members organization. Uh, we provide them with threat intelligence. Uh, we provide them research on trends in incidents and vulnerabilities that schools are experiencing. We provide regular briefings to our members, but then we also work with our members to build products that folks in the sector need. So for instance, we've built some incident response planning resources. So schools that don't have cyber incident response plans, we've got a 10-page incident response runbook they can pick up and customize. We have built a set of uh, controls for schools. We're not trying to replace the NIST cybersecurity framework or the CIS controls. We're trying to scaffold schools into those sorts of frameworks, into thinking in that sort of construct, right? And so we've identified a dozen controls that we think every school district can and should put in place. Right. And so we train districts on how to put those into place and we provide them with professional development. So, you know, we do our work and we make it available at k126.org. Much of it is publicly available. But of course, due to the sensitive nature of our work, a lot of it is available just to members um, themselves. So, you know, certainly we would love folks to learn more about us. If you care about this issue, uh, reach out, talk to us. If you've got kids in school, encourage your schools to check us out and to join us in this work. You know, frankly, there is not another resource like our organization. It is shocking to say that, because frankly, one would have imagined that something would have been needed a long time ago. Um, so I'm glad that we stepped into this, but I think, you know, you are correct in observing, John, this has been a bit of a sort of a passion project for me. And this really work has been led by those who kind of deeply understand the sector and are passionate about trying to help it. And kind of in the absence of government stepping in or the absence of a big foundation funding something, you know, we're just trying to do the right thing and help folks where we where it's clear they need help. And, you know, our belief is if we just do good work, momentum will build and we'll be in a place where we can really affect positively the, the you know, the, the posture of lots of school districts, frankly, ultimately, not just in the U.S., but all, but all over the world. No, I'm really super excited, I, you know, and that's why I really wanted to highlight the work that you're doing in, in this journey. So the ROI for, for K-12 joining K-12-6 is, is that it's a no-brainer, right? At the end of the day, it's access to resources, collaboration, professional development. But obviously, like, so you are a nonprofit. Nonprofit, you know, you're developing resources. That stuff costs money. How does the private sector potentially get involved with you all or to help support or, or any of that? A couple of thoughts on that. So, I mean, clearly this is an ecosystem issue. So one is, you know, for those folks who sell to schools, education suppliers and vendors, one of the issues that we have been grappling with lately, frankly, has been that of third-party risk, right? Uh, and there have been a couple of high-profile incidents that have happened very recently in the K-12 sector where education companies themselves have been victims of incidents that have wrapped up, you know, frankly, 
millions of students across school districts all across the country. So one is we want to be in conversation with those who are working in education to help you sort of shore up your practices and figure out a way to work with you more closely. For those who work sort of in the cybersecurity world more broadly, right, or even just care about these issues, we do engage with organizations on sort of a sponsorship basis, much the way like a regular uh, sort of a membership association would, right? And so we are looking for support from those organizations in our work. In some cases, that is just offering us direct support so we can provide more and better resources to our members. In other cases, it'll allow us to take on special projects, maybe ones that you know companies have special uh, expertise in. You know, in other cases, we're also happy to have conversations with folks about being able to offer uh, discounts on products and services to schools where those services are particularly valuable for schools, right? Where they really meet the use case of schools that, uh, you know, frankly, don't have a lot of money and that don't have a lot of capacity, uh, right? But they definitely need tools to help protect themselves. So we really want to work with everybody who has an interest and a stake in helping you know, is interested in protecting organizations like schools from these threats. I appreciate you, uh, you know, providing that information out. I'm extremely happy that you've, you've stepped in, right? That, that your passion has led you to this point here. You know, we could talk about this all day long. Like, I absolutely love talking about this, this space in particular, right? Because it, it's a challenge, right? Because there's not a lot, there's no big budgets and everything. And, you know, and I think that the work that the six is doing right now to kind of be that intermediary right now. And I think to force some hard conversations, but so we've covered a lot of ground today. Is there anything else that you want to highlight perhaps, you know, your upcoming conference next year? Yeah, that's a great plug. So we do have a public webinar series that we've been running for some time. Um, that's all available up at k126.org, our website. Um, but we are pleased to announce that we're actually going to be launching a first, uh, our first, and actually, frankly, the nation's first K-12 cybersecurity-specific conference for K-12 IT practitioners. So our first uh, event will be in February of 2023. This is, uh, you know, announcing it uh, to you today is sort of getting a little bit ahead of where we are and publicly announcing it, but we have done that to our members. But we're really excited about it, and we're hoping to build this conference over the span of two or three years, because frankly, this is an event that should appeal to IT leaders and school district leaders from all over the country. There's no reason that this event uh, shouldn't be providing advice and guidance, frankly, to the thousands of school districts all across the country, because frankly, they need increased awareness. They need that support and professional development. And frankly, you know, the, I think the cybersecurity community and privacy community writ large does you know, frankly, need to circle and focus specifically on on this audience. I think it is one of uh, terrific need. And I also think for those of us who are also parents, that there is a little bit of personal investment, I think, that might be uh, found an enrichment, I think, in giving back to the sector. All right. So just uh, to clarify for our audience, it's k12six.org. Correct. That's absolutely right. Yes. K12, K12, Security Information Exchange, SIX.org. To learn more about the great work that Doug is doing, click on the link below in the video. That's all the time we have for today. I want to thank you again, Doug, for this great conversation. Thank you very much, John, for having me. Always, as you know, happy to talk about this issue and thrilled to shine a light on it. 
Thanks again. I'm John Brandt, and this is CyberPros. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. To listen to more podcasts from ISACA, please visit isaka.org slash podcast. Don't forget to subscribe for upcoming episodes.